few years ago, a woman in a small farming town in Minnesota, rural Minnesota, died. That probably happens every single day. So why would that story be of any interest to us in Chicago, Illinois? Well, what is particularly interesting about that situation was the obituary that her children wrote for her when she died. It was short and to the point, just a few paragraphs long. The last concluding paragraph of the obituary reads this way. She passed away on May 31st, 2018 in Springfield and will now face judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay, that's her children, and they understand that this world is a better place without her. The children of that woman seemed to be pleased that she had died, seemed to be relieved that she had died. Can you imagine celebrating the death of someone? Why would someone, or what would someone, I should say, have to have done in her long life, and what would she have had to do to her children in order to spur them to write that kind of obituary? The legacy she left behind sounds like it was a tragedy. Sounds like she deeply affected the people in her life, but in all the worst ways. When you read that kind of obituary, it makes you say, man, I do not want to live a life like that. I don't want people to be relieved when I die. The Bible records an obituary of sorts, and it is written so that when people read it, you will say, man, I do not want to live like that. I do not want to be associated with that system. If she dies that way, I want to steer clear. And that's what today's passage does for us. Revelation 17 and 18. If you don't have a Bible, this is going to be on one of the last pages of the entire Bible. You can just go to the very back in pages, the last couple of pages, chapters 17 and 18. It's describing the funeral that you actually want to celebrate. Like those children in Minnesota celebrated the death of their mother, this passage tells us you want to celebrate this death. I believe this passage, which we'll read in a moment, was written down for us by the Apostle John so that he could as clearly and persuasively as possible give us this message. Do not be seduced by the allures of this world. Do not be seduced by the allure of this world. In fact, I think this passage is a picturesque way of showing or describing what John explicitly says in 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're going to talk a lot in this sermon today, from this passage today, about worldliness. And perhaps if you're new to Christianity or not a Christian, you're just curious what we as Christians believe and do, You might ask, what in the world is worldliness? And a theologian I really respect named David Wells wrote years ago, worldliness is whatever makes holiness seem strange 
and ungodliness seem normal. I think you said it more eloquently than that. It's whatever makes sin look normal and holiness look strange. That's what worldliness is. If it's something that will make you look weird because you're a Christian, you shouldn't do that. That's what worldliness makes you want to think. I don't want to look weird to people. Well, it's probably a good instinct in most parts of life. Sometimes it's good to be weird. That's what this would tell us. It's okay to be weird. Even good. To stand out as being strange because you want to please God more than you want to please people. I'm going to read all the way through this passage, Revelation 17 and 18. It looks kind of long, but that's because chapter 18 is, at least in the ESV, uh, laid out in a certain way to show that it's poetic. But it won't take us too, too long. But as I read this aloud, I want to ask you to be asking yourself, why should I not allow myself to be allured or to be seduced by the allure of the world? Why should I not want that to happen to me? Why should I protect my heart? So think of that question. And I believe the passage gives us three answers that we'll look at together. But listen for those answers of why should I not be seduced? Why should I not let myself be seduced by this world? And here, this passage that I read aloud, Revelation 17 and 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. 
They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, 
so will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Do not be seduced by the allure of the world. I mentioned this passage gives us three reasons, I believe, for why you should not want to be allured, why you should not want to be seduced by the world. The first is that it is ardently opposed to God. You certainly saw that as we read aloud. This creature, this woman, this city, it's described in so many different ways, hates God is opposed to God, wants nothing to do with God. Sometimes in this passage, this system is called Babylon, or the great city. And this is not the first time we've seen this. Perhaps you remember back in chapter 14, verse 8, we read, And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Essentially saying the exact same message as today's passage. Same as in chapter 16, verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So those passages also talk about the fall of Babylon, and what I'm submitting to you again is that this book of Revelation is going in cycles. It's kind of getting more specific and more intense with each cycle. We saw that with the the earthquake and the hail and the thunder and that kind of repeated phrase at the end of each section. And here we have the destruction of Babylon one time in chapter 14 and then the destruction of Babylon again in chapter 16 and then destruction again in chapter 17 and 18. What in the world is that? And it's the cycles repeating. And this time, 17 and 18 is fully devoted to what he alluded to briefly back in chapter 14, verse 8 and back in chapter 16, verse 19. This is kind of zooming in, saying like, all right, well, we've looked at the destruction of the beast, and we've looked at this, we've looked at that. Let's zoom in on the destruction of the system, the whole worldwide system that hates God. Throughout uh, church history, perhaps you're familiar with the fact that Christians have interpreted this passage in a variety of ways. So early Christians said, well, surely this is describing maybe there's going to be a rise of Babylon again. At this point, it really wasn't the superpower of the world. Rome was. Maybe this means that Babylon's going to rise again. There's going to be some kind of literal way in which Babylon is going to have regained world power, and this is describing that fall of Babylon. I don't think that's the best way to read this. Most people, well, let me give one other option. Some interpreters, I would say a pretty small subset, say this is describing Jerusalem, but when John wrote this, Jerusalem was not a world power in the way that Rome was. So I think most interpreters have understood this to be Rome, and I think they're right. But I think they're right in the way that Rome is like the, the symbol of the fall of the whole world system. So when Rome fell, yes, that was good for those, <coughs> excuse me, good for those who had been opposed or been 
persecuted by Rome. But it didn't stop there. It's not like once Rome fell, now Christians can live in great freedom and everything's fine. No, there's always been opposition to God. And there's always been opposition to the people of God, which, is mean that, which means that you are opposed because of your association with the Lord, your desire to be faithful to Him. And so I think it's best to see this passage, this, uh, this lengthy passage we just read, as symbolic of the system of opposition to God throughout history. We read in chapter 17, verse 1, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. What in the world does that mean? You can picture somebody like floating on a raft or something. Like, how do you sit on many waters? And I think, I mean, he interprets later on for us what he means by that. He says, the waters, this is in verse 15, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And so I think what we need to kind of zoom out and see is that throughout Revelation, water is often viewed, and particularly the sea, is often viewed as being in opposition to God. So when it says in Revelation 21 that there's no more sea, it means there's no more opposition to God. We saw the beasts in chapter 13 coming out of the waters, coming out of the sea, because it was in opposition to God. And so for this woman, this prostitute, symbolizing hatred toward God and love for the pleasures of this world in general, when it says that she's seated on the waters, it's saying that you are in a position of authority, you're, you're admired, you at least seem to think of yourself as being sovereign, being the authority, but it's all a mirage in reality. When it describes in verse 2 this immorality and he describes it two different times there in the, the fact that the kings of the earth and the dwellers on earth have become drunk with the sexual immorality described here. I think what that's describing is simply idolatry. And I get that from books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel particularly, and book of Hosea, that throughout the Bible, idolatry or worshiping anyone other than God or anything other than God is described in the symbolic and picturesque language of sleeping with a prostitute. And that's what John does here in a very lengthy way. So John is doing a deep dive into Jeremiah, and I could give you hours worth of reading of cross-references from Jeremiah and Ezekiel particularly, and again, as we've seen in just about every sermon in this series, from Daniel 7. He keeps going back to that well over and over again. And so he's extensively alluding to those Old Testament passages to expose you to what it looks like for God to judge his wicked enemies for their opposition to him. Those who are not part of the people of God are alluded to throughout this passage and throughout this book in the, again, symbolic name of dwellers on earth. Did you notice that in verse uh, chapter 17, verse uh, 2? The dwellers on earth have become drunk. This shows up again in verse 8. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. So these, who are, in, these are people who are enraptured by the enticements of this world. They're dwellers on earth as opposed to dwellers on heaven, uh, in heaven. A dweller in heaven is someone who has their name in the book of life, he says in that verse 8 there. But these are people who are living their best life now. 
which is what our world tells you to do. Why would you not want to live your best life now? Well, if you are outside of the people of God, that means that you are a dweller on earth, not a dweller in heaven. And that means that this is your best life, whether you want it to be or not. And I want to compel you to believe this is not what you want to be, your best life. For the people of God, this is not your best life. Your best life is to come when there is no more suffering, no more persecution, no more sin habits. This passage tells us there are only two ways to live. You can be an earth dweller, or in the language of 17, verse 8, you can be in the book of life. And if you're not a Christian, we want to urge you to turn in faith to Christ today so that your name will be revealed to be in the book of life. It's already there. If you're ever going to come to faith in Christ, like there wasn't a time five years ago before you became a Christian, let's say, when your name wasn't in the book of life and then you prayed a prayer and then your name was added. No, it's saying in verse 8, those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. What What is the foundation of the world? It's saying before human history even began, God wrote this book. And all those who are in it are sealed forever, are safe forever. In other words, you want your name to be in that book. So we urge you to repent and believe, which will then reveal that your name is already in that book. It's not like it then magically gets added after you've prayed that prayer. Or turned in faith, however that looks. This System, the world system, hates God. It stands in opposition to God. One theologian named Thomas Schreiner says, the fundamental sin of Babylon, again, symbolic language here, is idolatry, the de-godding of God. She glorified herself, as 18.7 says. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. Instead of giving honor, glory, and praise to the one true God, the kings, merchants, and sailors of the earth have climbed into bed with Babylon For they have lived for the luxury, riches, status, and comfort that come from being aligned with Babylon. Like, if I want people to like me and to think well of me, I want to be linked up with those people. That's what the kings of the earth are saying. And John's like, no, get out while you can. You do not want to be linked with people who are in opposition to God because that shows that you are in opposition to God. So don't fall for this world. Don't fall in love with this world because it is ardently opposed to God. That's the first reason. You should not be enticed and seduced and swayed by the allure of this world because it's ardently opposed to God. Secondly, don't love the world because it seeks to destroy you. It's like the pit bull that wants to get one bite of you so it can pull you in and keep going at you and keep destroying you. The world looks good on the outside, doesn't it? So shiny, so beautiful. But it's like the apple that killed Snow White. It's red, it's round, it's shiny, looks beautiful, and it's poison, and it will destroy you. Chapter 17, verse 6 demonstrates this for us. As you can tell, we're not not walking line by line, giving a verbal commentary. If you want that, signed up for the wrong 
passage at least, if not the wrong pastor, but uh, chapter 17, verse 6 says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, this world system wants to destroy you because you follow Jesus. You've aligned with Him. You're flying His flag. You're wearing His uniform. And it wants to destroy you. It says the same thing in chapter 18, verse 24. In this woman, in this world system, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So while you are within the sights, so to speak, it's like the enemy has you looking at you through its scope and he wants to pull the trigger and destroy you. If you are in the book of life, you're safe. You're secure. No one can erase your name or white out your name. You are safe. So rejoice in your spiritual protection. Again, there are people who are earth dwellers and there are people who have been written in the book of life. This is Philippians 4 verse 3. And this is multiple times here in the book of Revelation. Rejoice in your spiritual protection because the world seeks to destroy you. The world makes empty promises and empty threats. What are, in your mind, what are some of the promises that the world makes to you? Maybe the one that says, you can be satisfied by our pleasures and they will satisfy you forever. That's a lie. That's a promise the world cannot keep. And what are the threats that the world makes? You will be miserable if you don't indulge in those pleasures that we told you about. You'll be rejected by society if you don't bow to us. You don't play by our rules and live within our system. Do not believe the world's lies, friends. I assume you are all eager to follow the Lord. I seek to assume every single week that maybe you're going to bring somebody who's never heard the gospel and I want to talk to that person as if they are welcome here because they are. So I assume that. And I also assume that you're here because you want to walk with Jesus and you want to dwell with Him forever and see Him face to face. And so friends, I just want to urge you to not believe the world's lies because the world makes promises it cannot keep. The world offers pleasures it cannot sustain. And the world leaves you with an emptiness it cannot help you shake. It leaves you with the worst hangover you could ever imagine. Going to a shopping mall, I think, is an encapsulated version of facing the allures of this world. You open the door. They've arranged the hallways. Have you ever noticed this? The hallways are shiny. They make you want to walk down those corridors. Have you ever noticed what else you notice as soon as you what, notice what you notice? Notice what you take in as you open the door. The smell of delicious cinnamon rolls that are warm and gooey and melting. And you want one of those. And so you have that tantalizing smell and you hear the happy songs. You notice they don't play songs that you would hear at a funeral, generally speaking, in the mall. So they're playing happy songs. The lights shine on the merchandise just right. They set it up that way. So you get your latte and you eat your soft pretzel and you're wandering around and how convenient you can buy a phone case with a kitten on it or anything else for that matter. 
And then you walk down this aisle, and there's a game store. And if I have that game, my friends will want to come over, and I'll be popular again. And I look that way, and I can buy those clothes that will make me look like I'm with it instead of so outdated. Okay, boomer. And you can go and get the perfume that will make your lover's heart melt. Or you can get the toy that will make your child stop whining. You can get the makeup that will get you the attention you've been looking for. And that's all just on the first floor. We can keep going. The world wants you to be walking down those aisles or through those hallways or through those open areas if you're at Oakbrook Center, taking in the sights and the sounds and the smells and saying, yeah, take my money. Just shut up and take all my money. and Give me what you're offering me. And I'm not saying that Oakbrook Center is the seedbed of the devil, as far as I know. I'm simply saying it's not neutral. You need to train your heart to sniff out the idolatry that lingers in the air and permeates the entire structure of the shopping experience. And for those of us who are too sophisticated to go to a mall, you can do this just fine on your couch, on your phone, or on your laptop, or on your iPad, on Amazon. Just realize it's the same thing. They're suggesting items to you. There are ads flashing. There are prices in red with a line through the black line that says this is a couple dollars cheaper than it was a few months ago. You should get it now before the price goes back up. They're trying to seduce you just the same. They're going to tell you this product that, I mean, seriously, if you open your phone right now and order something, it'll be on your doorstep this afternoon. That's crazy. But it happens all the time at our house, like almost every day. And again, Amazon doesn't care about your soul. It's not the seedbed of Satan. I don't think Jeff Bezos wants to ruin your life. He does want to make his life really nice, and he's done a good job of that. They just want your credit card number, though. That's all they want. Save it so it's easy to click, you know, one-step checkout next time you want something. What happens after you hit save my credit card information is immaterial to them. They don't care if you're still alive or not. They just want your information. They just want your money. And I'm simply telling you, John would say here, it's all part of the system that's crouching at your door to destroy you. To make you think, oh, I could get more. I could be more well-liked. I could look like I'm more with the times. I could smell better and look better and be in better shape and on and on. The world wants you dead. Because the world wants to destroy you. Do not love the world because it is ardently opposed to God. Do not love the world because it seeks to destroy you. And third, do not love the world because it will be destroyed by God. Did you notice that? This is not like, it's all bad out there and there's nothing we can do about it. John is saying, it's going down. Literally, it's going down in flames, he says. So get out. Don't have anything to do with it now. Why did John write this passage? Again, it's not so that Christians in first century Rome or anywhere in that area, in those churches that we talked about in chapters 2 and 3, so that they can be like, huh, that's interesting. That'll happen in the future. No, he wrote it to say, 
Get away from it. Don't be allured and enticed and seduced by all the trappings that the world wants you to have. The end of the story you read in chapter 17, verse 14, is that Jesus wins. You see that in verse 14? They make war on the Lamb. Well, that sounds bad. And the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords. You didn't know who you were messing with. Jesus wins. He's Lord of lords. He's King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. The world system will be destroyed by God. Because God gets His way. Look at verse 17 of chapter 17 again. Kind of have to back up to get the, the sentence started. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out their purpose. No, that's not what it says. That's why I'm saying look at the text there. God has put it in their hearts to carry out His purpose. That should blow your mind. That the whole world system that is opposed to God is in God's hands. I want, Christian, I want to urge you to not panic about how bad the world is, how much they're out to get our children, which is true, how much they want to destroy us, which is true. I just, that was the second part of my outline here. But I want you to know that God wins at the end of the day. So be faithful to Him and keep preaching faithfulness to Christ. Not all the evil, the evil, the evil that's out there. Or in here too. We got it in here. We got just as much sin in our hearts as there is out on the internet. Or at the Oak Brook Center, heaven forbid. But my point is, focus on the fact that Jesus wins because God has put it in the hearts of even wicked people so that His purpose will be carried out. They have one mind, they're united against God, and it all works out to perfection at the end of the day on God's map, so to speak. So what happens at the end of the day? What's this amazing city that lures people in with the sense of cinnamon rolls or perfumes or shiny cell phones or whatever else? What happens? Have you ever seen pictures of Sochi, Russia, now, nine years after they hosted the Olympics, do you know what those buildings look like? They're all run down. Wild animals live there. Birds have their nests there. Why? Because they're worthless. Because they built them in a hurry and never even finished some of them so that Russia could get its time in the sun hosting the Winter Olympics in 2014 and the whole village is a dump. And the same could be said of the Olympics hosted in 2000. In 2008, in 2012, we could go on and on. Buildings sit there in rubble. Animals live there. Homeless people live there. It's all covered in graffiti. And that's what it sounds like when you come to this part of the passage where it's like, alas, alas for the great city. It's all been laid waste in verse, chapter 18, verse 17. It's like all, all the crafts you could get there Craftsmen don't have any crafts there. The sound of the mill, like people could buy food there? No, there's no grinding of the mill because there's nobody there to buy the food. There's no happy couple walking down the aisle hearing here comes the bride or whatever else 
because nobody lives there to get married there. What happened to that great, beautiful monstrosity of a city? It's been laid waste. It's gone. And how do people respond to this in chapter 18, verse 11? Get the, again, one of my strategies for preparing a sermon is like start underlining all the key words that are repeated over and over again. So I just like showed my cards a little bit there. This one kind of works. Chapter 18, verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Chapter 18, verse 15, the merchants of these wares will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Chapter 18, verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned. Sounds like a lot of people are having a pity party. Why? Because the great city has been destroyed. God will win. God exalts himself in the face of those who exalt themselves against him. I just want you to hear the sound of that mourning. Hear the sound of that weeping. When I was in Australia about 15, 20 years ago, I was out in the outback, and I was invited with the people, two or three guys I was with, for a little mission trip out there to go to a funeral. It was the most unusual funeral I've ever been to. Not the worst funeral I've ever been to. That I talked about in Sunday school a little bit, or alluded to anyway. But the most unusual, and the most unusual part of the unusualness was the fact that throughout the entire ceremony, if you want to call it that, sitting out in the baking sun in a desert, I mean, just covered in red dust, everything was, was that everyone was, at different volume levels, in different intervals, and at times it was overwhelming because everybody made the noise at the same time. They were wailing over the person who had died. That's what it sounds like. They are weeping and mourning, and they're throwing dust on their heads, expressing, it could never get any worse than this. This has got to be the last day, because it is. So you don't want to be in that city on that last day. And that's why John is being merciful to give us this message from the angel when he says in chapter 18, verse 4, come out of her, my people. Because if you're inside those city walls, when they start to crumble, it's too late. Get out of the world system now while you have a chance. Otherwise, you're going to take part in her sins. You're going to share in her plagues. And that's not good because her sins are as high as the sky. That's what verse 5 says. It's also really bad because God remembers. He knows everything. And he's not going to get the wrong address when he dials up his judgment on the last day. Come out from them. Come out of her, the angel from heaven says. And this sounds a lot like God's mercy telling Noah, get in the boat, because the water is about to get really high. So go ahead and get in the ark, and you'll be spared. It's a lot like God telling Lot, Get your wife, get your kids, and get out of Sodom and Gomorrah because it's going to be real bad, real fast. And it sounds a lot like Paul telling the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hear this. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. How does John, I'm sorry, how does Paul conclude that paragraph? With a call just like this one in chapter 18, verse 5. He says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And if you've heard anything I've said, hopefully the question that's kind of ping-ponging around in your mind is, am I a worldly person? How would I know if I am? How do I know if I'm smelling the smells and don't even realize it because I've gotten so used to living on the farm? And so you can ask yourself questions about, how do I spend my money? Or how do I save my money? How do I spend my time? And what do I prioritize? And what do I entertain myself with? What story does the magazines that you receive at your house tell? What story does the websites you visit tell? If you do sense that that some worldliness has crept into your heart, come in so many different shapes, I won't even take time to name them, but I think you understand what we're talking about here. If you sense that worldliness has crept into your heart, there's a right way to respond to that. Lord, I repent. Help me to get a vision of your city, the one that lasts forever, that's described at the end of this book in a few chapters, instead of the city that's going to be destroyed and brought down and engulfed in flames. This is talking about the Satan-inspired enemies of God conniving to destroy you. They want to destroy you. It's because they're opposed to God. But God's going to destroy them. I don't know about you. I find those reasons pretty compelling to not want to be in the city of man, as John Bunyan called it. we should actually celebrate the destruction of the wicked city where the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth are doing whatever they want in opposition to God and saying, yeah, we can live however we want. We can obey our emotions at all costs. And you know what? The world's telling you that same lie. Obey your emotions at all costs. Don't let somebody get in the way of you showing who you really are. So get your tattoos and do your hair and wear the clothes that tell who the authentic you really is. This is the world's way of wrapping themselves up tighter around you. I saw a video that's disgusting the other day of a very large snake, probably like this wide around or wider in some parts, wrapped entirely around a dog. The dog couldn't move. This was in like... Thailand or Vietnam or somewhere probably Southeast Asia from all I could tell. There were people wailing on that snake, which was probably like 10 feet long from all I could tell. Wailing on it with shovels. Four or five people prying at it. And that thing was wrapped 
tightly around that dog. And the dog could do nothing. And they eventually, the villagers, whoever it was, got that dog free. But it took the minutes, it's probably like a minute, two minute long video of them trying to untangle that thing. What I'm saying is that that's what Satan wants to do to you is wrap you up tight and not let you go. And it's like those villagers with the shovels banging the mess out of that snake trying to help you. That's why we need each other. This is what the church is supposed to look like. Is we all see, like, you're, you're kind of ensnared. You need some help. Let me call you to repentance. That's what the church is supposed to do. And it might mean working really hard like those people were against that snake, because we hear these lies of obey your emotions at all costs. Like, no one can tell you your emotions are wrong. Yeah, 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 we can, actually. Because all of our emotions are wrong at times. So don't listen to the statement that says, live your truth, and let other people live theirs, however they want that to be. No, particularly in the church, don't believe that lie. The lie that says, trust yourself and never let anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a sinner. Tuh. Of all things. So outdated. The world would say, invent and advertise your own identity. In short, the world would say, follow your heart. I saw that on a commercial yesterday while watching a football game with my boys. Follow your heart. No. I told my boys, please don't do that. Because the people who follow their heart straight into the prison cell or straight into the alley where they get mugged or whatever else, your heart doesn't lead you to good places, so don't follow it. The funeral for that woman was surely sad. If they even had one in that small town in Minnesota. But the funeral for the wicked world system will only be sad for those who are part of it. They will say, as the repeated refrain in this passage has said, they will say, alas for that great city. Alas just means like all the regret, all the shame. Alas for that great city. But we say, praise to the conquering Lamb who overcomes the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, despite the ways we show our unfaithfulness to you so deeply and so regularly. Thank you for this picture of what the last day will look like for all those who link their arms in opposition to you. And we beg you, Lord, to spare our loved ones from that fate that we've just read of, to spare our neighbors from it, to spare those in this midst who aren't sure whether it's worth it to follow Jesus, who think it might be better just to be popular, or think it might be better just to be rich. Spare us by giving us a vision of the conquering Lamb who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In his name we pray. Amen. We sing the music.